In modern times, one of the most difficult issues leaders are faced with is helping those who struggle with mental health. No longer can we simply encourage a good measure of scripture study and prayer and expect everyone's life to stabilize. This is why Leading Saints felt it was so important to organize the Mentally Healthy Saints Library. There, one can find 25 plus presentations all about ministering to those who struggle with mental health. We cover topics like depression, anxiety, scrupulosity, or OCD. We even cover how to effectively refer individuals to professional therapists and make sure they are getting the help they need. This and so much more. If you'd like to review all of these sessions, we would love to have you do so at no cost. You can visit leadingsaints.org 14 and get access to the full library for 14 days. You'll also receive access to all our virtual libraries where we cover additional leadership related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org 14. So you're checking us out as maybe a potential podcast you could start listening to. I know many of you have been listening for a long time, but let me just talk to the newbies for a minute. What is Leading Saints? What are we trying to do here with this podcast? Well, let me explain. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization, a 501c3 is what they call it. And we have a mission to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, of course, that often means in the context of a calling, it may mean in your local community, your work assignments. We've heard about our content influencing all sorts of leaders in all sorts of different contexts. We invite you to listen to this episode and maybe a few others of our 500 plus episodes that we have out there. Jump in and begin to learn and begin to consider some of these principles we talk about on the Leading Saints podcast. Here we go. One of my favorite things to do on this podcast is to sit down with really smart people. I mean, I'm talking people who've gone to college for years and years, gotten a PhD in a specific subject. I sit down with them and I say, okay, now how does all that apply to being a leader in the church? And that's exactly what I've done today with Dr. Glenn Chiraldi, who is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, West Point, and a Vietnam-era veteran. His master's degree is from BYU, and his doctoral degree is from the University of Maryland. He's a convert of over 49 years, and he and his wife have led an addiction recovery program for several years. And in this episode, we talk about trauma, but not just any trauma. We're talking about adverse childhood experiences, ACE. That's an acronym he refers to a lot in this episode. And we talk about the dynamic of what these adverse experiences in our childhood do to us in our personal development, physical development, with our health, and most importantly, our spiritual development. And this is so crucial for leaders to understand as you have individuals who are just struggling in life, who turn to the gospel, turn to you as leaders and say, help. I don't know why nothing's going right, or I can't stop sinning, or I'm coping in unhealthy ways, or maybe coping in ways that... Uh, seem to be good, but are actually destructive. We definitely geek out in this episode, going deep on the concept of trauma and how it is manifested in a religious context in our faith tradition. So hang with us. It's really good, solid information that every leader needs to understand. We talk about why some people struggle in life more than others, tactics leaders can use when they're actually sitting down with somebody who's really struggling, or maybe they're struggling with sin, and it's related to past traumas. What do you even say or how do you help them and encourage them to go seek professional help? And then what about the unhealthy overachiever, right? The religions are stigmatized because of this. That sometimes there's individuals who are overachieving in unhealthy ways, you know, be therefore perfect. And they take that literally meaning I've got to be therefore perfect tomorrow, right? And they overachieve, but in unhealthy ways. So we covered all phenomenal deep dive discussion. Let's get to it. Here's my interview with Dr. Glenn Chiraldi.
Glenn Schiraldi, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. It's great to be with you, Kurt. Yeah, this is a long time coming. I guess uh, I made a few trips to the Orlando, Florida area. And uh, whenever I go to a, a location, I'm always asking, you know, if people know certain individuals I should interview while I'm there. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't, weren't able to do this interview in person. But uh, nonetheless, uh, we arranged it remotely. And uh, and here we are. So how long have you, you lived in that area of the world? Uh, my wife and I moved down here from Northern Virginia about five years ago. Oh, wow. Theoretically to retire, but I haven't quite started that yet. <laughs> hey, you know, some of us are born to never retire, and uh, you're probably that's one of those. The case, yeah. <laughs> nice. So, are you originally from uh, Virginia? Uh, no, I was born in Brooklyn and uh, grew up till I was 18 in Long Island, and then I uh, was in the service in the Army uh, after I graduated from West Point, and uh, then I worked at the University of Maryland and, and uh, the Pentagon and, and the foundation that works with uh, military cops and firefighters. So I've been doing that for quite a long time, still wow. doing it. And lifelong member of the church? No, I joined the church in 1974 uh, while I was in the service. And uh, I always say I'm an eternally grateful convert. Um, and uh it just weaves in so beautifully to the kind of work I do, healing, yeah. helping people heal and prevent and recover from yeah. bad stuff that happens. So give us your, your two-minute conversion story, <laughs> if that's possible. <laughs> well, uh, I was in the service, and uh, I was raised a Catholic. And and uh, unlike a lot of my Catholic friends, I, I had very good experiences. I remember just times when I looked at the Savior on the cross and just felt such awe and love. And that feeling never really, really left. But but I think after the service, which was, you know, I was in the 60s and, and 70s, um, it was not a particularly supportive uh, experience for faith. And so I had questions and, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm in Arizona, my last uh, duty station before I uh, got out of active duty and, and went to the reserves. And uh, so I started this visit different churches and there was a row of churches. The third one was an LDS church. I'd never heard of that. And uh, thought that kind of died out with the pioneers. And, but every time I went, I learned and felt something that kept me coming back. And uh, I met some really good friends in the service who, you know, it was kind of a classic fellowship uh, experience and got baptized and I was going to go, to graduate school back east and a, a friend of mine had baptized me so why don't you look at BYU and so I did and liked it and graduated from there I got my master's uh, came back to University of Maryland and got my doctorate and actually I just uh, was invited to speak at the College of Life Sciences which is really a lot of fun just to just to kind of consider where the spiritual journey had taken me all these years so wow um, it's been a, a great uh, blessing. Nice. And then how do you frame your professional career? You said you had, you have a doctorate. So are you more on the academic side or are you more like, uh, you know, helping individual individuals with therapy? So um, I taught in what became the school of public health. And as a public health guy, my focus was how do you take stuff out of the clinic and teach people preventively? Uh, how, to, how to not get stress-related conditions like depression and post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety. And um, I, I was hired into the program that I studied under, and, uh, and it, was, it was a beautiful stress program, but it was basically bottom-down. It was biomedical, and, and people would come up after a class or a workshop and say, well, I'm stressed, I'm depressed, are they related? And where can I find a good book on how to... Uh, get out of the depression. I said, well, let me look. And, and most of the time I, I couldn't find a, a user-friendly book on, on depression, anxiety, and anger, and self-esteem, uh, post-traumatic stress. So I ended up writing a whole bunch of books on these kind of things. But what was the most fun is I, I started developing courses where we got usually, but not always, younger people in their formative years and, and tried to teach skills to basically to cope, what I came to call resilience training. 
but skills to prevent depression, anxiety, anger, build self-esteem, learn happiness skills, and I think it is a skill, and didn't know when we started whether or not they would do anything. Um, And what we found is everything we've we've looked at uh, changed in a good way. So we found with skill training, and every day it was, here's a principle, here's a skill, let's practice it together, go home and do it on your own, let's come back. Uh, next time we meet, what kind of process, what worked well and reinforce the success and what we could tweak. And and uh, we found the resilience improved, happiness, optimism, self-esteem improved, curiosity, which is sort of like flow and pleasant engagement, while the bad stuff decreased, anxiety, depression, and anger, the big three that has been found to cause so many diseases from headache to heart disease. So. Um, so that was my academic career. And then I kind of uh, also did that at the Pentagon with uh, military and civilians, ran the Department of the Army through it, and uh, was invited to teach for a foundation that works with high-risk groups like military cops, firefighters, the mental health professionals who teach them. Uh, but it's all been skill-based. You know, I want to give people not just information, but skills that they can use because life can be tough. Yeah. Uh, and even for Latter-day Saints, right? Life can be tough. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And and you, uh, with some of your recent research, you focus on just uh, like your book, your recent book is about hidden, hidden wounds from childhood and how they just impact us throughout our life. Um, and maybe help us understand this concept and maybe take us into a Latter-day Saint context as, as much as possible. Like the, the common Latter-day Saint, like how does how do these childhood wounds impact uh, their life? Probably just like everybody else outside of the church, the difference being, and I'll, I can say this right up front because I don't usually get to say this in, in secular uh, groups, but we have some terrific resources. And there's a myth that religious people fare worse around mental health. And it's just the opposite. The data is uh, very compelling that people who are spiritual and religious, you know, go to church and pray and meditate and so on, um, do very, very well, including Latter-day Saints. And, uh, you know, if you look at the data, a lot of these old assumptions that were just thrown out there, like everybody would agree and everybody knows this, it's, it's not true. So we have some terrific resources. But we're still mortal and we still have the same things that happen to everybody else. So going back to 1998, uh, two medical doctors, Vince Felitti, who was over preventive health for Kaiser Permanente, a large HMO, had access to records from 17,000 people just going to the doctor. And he teamed up with a Center for Disease Control uh, MD named Robert Anda. And what they found is that 10 adverse childhood experiences, now these were just the most commonly reported among basically white, middle-class, educated, employed, health-insured people. So these were not high-risk groups, Um, but they found that the more ACEs you had, the more likely you were to get a full range of psychological, medical, functional problems so the 10 original ACEs, and that 10 has been expanded since then, but the 10 original adverse childhood experiences were um, any kind of abuse, sexual, physical, emotional, two kinds of neglect, physical, emotional, living in a household where a parent was absent from divorce or separation, uh, domestic violence, someone doing drugs, uh, mentally ill, suicidal, or incarcerated. Um, And so in a stepwise fashion, the more of those you had, the more likely you were to get PTSD and ADHD and pick a mental disorder and and the likelihood increases, uh, as did medical disorders ranging from from heart attack and cancer to autoimmune to diabetes and functional things like problems in school and and, uh, employment and financial and divorcing more often. Um, And so I came up with that term hidden wounds, these scars that persist, that get imprinted 
and last throughout adulthood, often, not always, but often, unless we intervene and, and help people heal those wounds. Um, as I mentioned, once you get about four or more adverse childhood experiences, the rate, the risk increases two to five times on average, although it's much higher for things like ADHD, um, suicide, uh, drugs. And if you've got six or more ACEs, then you see uh, 20 years of life on average being lost, people dying early. Wow. So that blew my mind too, being in the, in the field for so long. But, um, you know, just starting to see this research accumulate. Um, yeah. It appears to be even worse among high-risk groups like people living in, in poverty, minority groups, and so on. Yeah. So, so again, with this term ACEs, and that's an acronym referring to um, adverse childhood experiences, right? Exactly. And, yeah. And like abuse. I mean, you list them off there. So, um, so you're saying like even somebody may have some of these, you know, one or two or three ACEs in their their childhood, and then later on in life, they their health just diminishes. They're not doing well, and they don't exactly know why. They haven't been a smoker, or you know, they exercise, but right. this this trauma can even have uh, uh, physical manifestations as well. Yeah, and I listen with interest to Sarah Brewer's wonderful podcast, like pornography oh, cool. or any other addiction. It's the same yeah. basic uh, mechanism. If there's unresolved pain that you don't know what to do with, people often go over to drugs to kill the pain. And as Sarah so beautifully said, it doesn't change the wound, the pain. What changes the wound is healing the origin, getting to the root of the pain. Yeah. Yeah. And and I love that transition that or the segue to not only physical manifestations, but spiritual manifestations like sin or what we may classify as addiction, right? I remember being that bishop. Um, there's two instances that come to mind. One, I remember uh, meeting with this gentleman who, whose life just seemed to be falling apart. He was struggling with, with pornography. His wife had left him. He couldn't really uh, hold a, a solid job. And I remember this moment of just sort of looking at him and in my brain, I'm thinking, like we, we are, our background is pretty much the same, right? We, we went to college, we, um, we had, grew up in a good religious family, but it, it, it almost came to a point and I wasn't aware of a lot of these data points or perspectives back then, but I thought, man, I think this is just sort of a, a crapshoot. Like, why is he on that side of the bishop's desk? And I'm on this side of the bishop's desk. It's not like I figured something out that he didn't. It just, you know, and sort of, I would throw my hands up like, well, some people just have it hard in life and others don't, but, um, and, and maybe that's the case to some degree, but it, it, it can be rooted in these, these ACE, uh, you know, adverse childhood experiences that, mm -hmm. uh, right. that, that could have impacted just the direction of our, our life. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to overstate cause you know, it isn't always the case, but, right. yeah. but, but it's one thing you've got to root, rule out and get to. Because if you don't get to it, you can change the behavior, but if you don't get to the root that's driving the behavior, it's likely to repeat. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, and and this isn't about, I want to state up front, this isn't about blaming parents. We all do the best we, mm. we know how to do, but, but it yeah. is about acknowledging there is an unhealed wound and I can do something about it. So it's not about blaming, it's about being aware and taking responsibility, which is, basically the road to healing from any kind of, of uh, trauma yeah. or stress. Yeah. So what would you say, like, you know, it, it gets said at nauseum that the bishop's not the therapist. And I don't think uh, any bishop other than the bishop who are therapists are actually wanting to be therapists. Um, but I really appreciate our tradition of having church leaders, whether it's the bishop or maybe a close uh, elders quorum president or whatever, like they can sometimes be the gateway of getting additional help mm -hmm. uh, that people are struggling with. So, I mean, what would you say to, as far as like recognizing some of the, when these adverse childhood experiences are manifesting in ways that aren't don't look directly related to that? Like what, is there something to look for or ways that a church leader can be of more of a resource to then lead them towards getting that help and addressing this childhood trauma? Yeah. Yeah. Our, our dear bishops, I mean, we're wonderful volunteers and, and the spiritual support is so important. I mean, I could cite data when people have it like veterans who are adaptive spiritually, they respond best to treatment. 
compared to those who don't have adaptive spirituality. So I'm, I'm never going to minimize how important the spiritual side of healing is. In fact, I think it's, it's central, it's critical. But um, the Lord has helpers sometimes. And, and sometimes when willpower and time is not healing and people are still troubled, um, that's when you go back and say, you know, maybe just to ask, you know, are there things that might have happened earlier? Or simply say, you know, you want to just go to an evaluation to maybe just check out that, you know, things often happen. You're not alone. This is not uncommon. And you can heal from it. Um, and and I, I need to say some, something about how these memories get imprinted because it is so critical to our understanding. Most therapists are trained traditionally in the West. You got a problem? Well, tell me about it. Talk to me. How are you feeling? What are you thinking? That's usually not the best starting point with trauma. Um, trauma in general, and particularly early childhood trauma, doesn't reside in the verbal, logical left brain, which can consciously recall stuff and talk about it. It resides primarily in the visual right brain, which has strong connections to the emotional brain, the survival brain, and, and that regulates um, the senses and bodily sensations, like I feel sick to my stomach, I have no idea why, or action tendencies, like I'm always tense, I have no idea why. So, so a good clinician who understands trauma will approach it from a bottom-up rather than a top-down way. By that, I mean calm the body so that the brain can follow and get into the what I call the resilience zone where arousal is not too high, not too low, where everything works. Um, all parts of the brain are working together. You're able to talk coherently uh, about what you do recall, what you don't recall. There are some brilliant strategies developed in recent years to just start with, okay, you have this feeling in your gut, you don't know where it comes from, or maybe it's shame. Um, shame gets imprinted often in the first weeks and months of life because the right brain in a child can take in a disgusted or angry look from a caregiver. And maybe, maybe well, the child doesn't understand the words because the left brain isn't developed enough, but it'll sense if they're not wanted, they're not mm, loved, wow. they're not enjoyed, they're not protected. Um, and again, without blaming anyone, but if the caregiver is stressed because of a cheating spouse or, or uh, conflict in the marriage, the, the child senses and internalizes that. And if you pick up the sense of shame that I'm not wanted, I'm no good, then 40 years later, we all have seen people that are, and we, my wife and I taught in the addiction recovery program for four years, people who were likable, nice looking, successful in a worldly sense, and they hated themselves. Yeah. And that's shame, basically. But you can't reason someone out of that because it didn't get reasoned into the person. It gets imprinted on the right brain as a felt sense. And so I got to use different clinical skills. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. And, and I think, and I don't know if this is the direction you want to go and maybe you can clear me up a little bit here, but there's this sense of like, maybe that, you know, the, let's say a bishop is sort of that gateway of I mean, wow, this person's really struggling. Maybe it's with sin or with other things like their life just, um, seems to be falling apart and, uh, above his pay grade. So he's going to refer out to a therapist. Well, the, that bishop doesn't maybe understand the dynamics of different therapy and what's needed to address trauma. And so in our Western lifestyle, we think therapy looks like an individual walks into an office, sits on a couch and talks a lot mm -hmm. and, you know, being prodded with questions from the therapist and uh, magically they feel better. Or at least that's the hope. Right. And I remember as a bishop for many instances that would help for other instances, I've been scratching my head, like, why are we paying for therapy? Like they've gone through six, seven, eight weeks and nothing seems to change. Right. And, um, and in the recent years, I don't know, I don't know if maybe this is too strong, but I've been a little more skeptical of just talk therapy in handling mm -hmm. some of these things because it's just a, it's just a different problem when dealing with trauma rather than just talk about it a lot. And then you'll suddenly feel better. I mean, maybe there's some coping strategies and whatnot, but um, but it sounds like what you're saying is that there may be a deeper, more, um, more dynamic approach to addressing 
these adverse childhood experiences that, that lead to trauma. Right. And, and I saw this all the time. I would get uh, graduate students from the psych department and they said, nobody tells us about this in the, in the psych department. You know, we, mm-hmm. we're taught Freudian stuff. We're taught cognitive therapy and that can be useful. Um, I think the guiding principle here, Kurt, is that um, it's helpful to tell your story, tell, talk about what happened, especially in a respectful environment. Hmm. But that often is the last step. You know, we can put the story to rest once we put it to words. But as I tried to express, many people are not able to talk about what happened. Either it happened before their words came online, the left brain came online, or it happened later under trauma, the left brain still goes offline because the brain says, you've got an emergency here, you've got to fight or flee, and you don't have time to think rationally or talk. So that memory again gets imprinted on the right side of the brain. And so here's a therapist classically trained saying, talk to me about what happened. Well, maybe I can't, maybe I'm afraid of losing control, maybe I don't trust you yet. Um, And so, yeah, you gotta, you got to know, you don't just send someone to a counselor. You want somebody who's a trauma specialist who particularly understands childhood trauma, attachment problems. And then all these skills make sense that, that I wrote about and, and uh, a, good, a good clinician will know, but that's yeah. relatively rare. So, I mean, for a, a church leader who's maybe referring an individual out to a professional therapist, are there some questions they could ask about, like, are you a trauma specialist or is there a certain, you know, a classification that or, or schooling yeah. that a therapist has received? How can we make sure they're getting the right therapy? Yeah. You definitely want a trauma specialist as opposed to just a, you know, typical talk therapist. But you want to go deeper than that. Um, I'll just tell you about the type of therapy that I'm most impressed with. Um, there's a new kind of therapy, relatively new, starting around 210, which means it's fairly new on the scene and the research is accumulating. It's called Accelerated Resolution Therapy, um, or ART for short. And the originator of it, a woman named Lainey Rosenzweig, took EMDR, I don't know if, if this is commonly known about, but it's where uh, yeah, you I'm familiar. Uh-huh. bring up all aspects of a trauma and then you just process that with eye movement. And that's very effective for treating trauma. So that's one way to treat it. Uh, Rosenzweig, though, very creative. She wanted to add things to it and take it much further than EMDR. And it turns out she came up with this accelerated resolution therapy, which works typically in three or four sessions, sometimes less complex stuff, sometimes a little more, but it's much quicker than most of the evidence-based trauma therapies that are being used right now. And so if I just simplify what she can do in an hour, she's just brilliant how she does this, but you start by saying, okay, briefly give me an idea what's going on. You can say as much or as little as you want because it's not the talking that's critical. Um, Okay, so I I was uh, mauled by by a dog when I was delivering mail, and now I can't deliver mail anymore. Just an example. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell me what physical symptoms and emotions you feel in your body. Let's process that with eye movements. So now you're calmed down. Now, can you put? Can you just? Can you think about an image of that trauma? And let's calm that with eye movements. And so now you've calmed the original trauma, and as an image and as bodily sensations and emotions. Then you say, uh, okay, let's change that image. Let's erase and replace the old image and weave in a new image that, that replaces uh, the old image. And you reinforce that with eye movements while you're doing eye movements, while you also deal with any lingering bodily sensations, um, any disturbance emotionally. And then the last part of it, and again, this often happens in an hour. Well, before I go to that part, sometimes you do uh, gestalt things where you say, okay, now I think there's some unfinished business. Would you like to try kind of visiting that person who hurt you and have a conversation and, you know, express what you felt then or what you wish you'd done, or if it's 
complicated grief. Maybe you say, you know, I never got to say goodbye to that person. Okay, why don't you go do that? Um, and then once you've kind of finished processing that old memory in a way that settles and usually do one scene in an hour and at the end of the hour you say um, imagine you're going to cross a bridge and you're going to leave all your unfinished old baggage on this side of the bridge maybe burn it do whatever you feel you need to do uh, can you process that now imagine walking over that other side of the bridge to a life that is joyful again or maybe joyful initially because you've never had joy um, and let's process that. And so in an hour, you've taken someone who's stuck in an old image and that's where most of the trauma is playing out, right brain, uh, settle the image, the associated symptoms, change the image and then visualize a, a brighter future. Mm. Brilliant, sometimes in an hour, um, you know, if there's a lot of different scenes involved in trauma that's chronic, maybe it takes longer than three or four or five sessions, but it doesn't take years like some of the old uh, therapies and it doesn't take typically months like some of the currently established therapies uh, do. And that's done all using EMDR as well, right? In conjunction? Well, it's with using eye movements. Um, okay, which is related to EMDR, right? Yeah, but it goes much further than that. Oh, okay. The CMDR and, and, is free associative. And in fact, when Rosenzweig was developing this, uh, they said, well, you either have to stop doing what you're doing or call it something else. So, <laughs> so she called it ART. Or oh, ART. I see. I see. So it's maybe a cousin to EMDR. Or yeah, it's a cousin, yeah. But okay. it's quicker than EMDR and I think much more well-conceived. Yeah. And this is, I, I wouldn't, um, it's on my list of content create because there are these different types of therapy. And for a church leader who's referring this out and maybe even paying for some of this therapy, it could sound really foreign, right? Like, wait a minute, like you did, it almost feels like witchcraft at times. Like you went in this office and did this eye movement thing. Like what's going on, you know, but in the, in the, uh, you know, clinical world is this is research based and very effective and right. people use it all the time. So and for those that don't know, EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Is that is my Google search correct? That's exactly right. <laughs> okay. And um but nonetheless it and it's amazing just seeing how these work and they're all you know they're all legitimate practices. But as a lay church leader, you may think like, oh well, I don't know what's going on there, but that's weird, right? But in reality these are very effective tactics. Yeah. Yeah. So it, you're right. It, it, it is based on, on good research. Um, it has all the elements of what has been found to heal. And so I think, I, you know, I train a lot of chaplains and I love it when a chaplain who is spiritually grounded also knows mental health. Mm -hmm. And I think life's getting complicated. We need to be pretty good at this stuff. Not that we have to be clinicians, but to be able to say, Oh yeah, I'm familiar with the kind of symptoms you're suffering and I'm reasonably familiar with why you have hope and where you can go. And I think that's a good gatekeeper. You yeah. don't have to be a therapist, but I think my whole career has been educating even parents. Parents can be pretty good on mental health uh, skills. Many of these are teachable in the home. Um, you know, and that's we got to know where our limits are and our boundaries are. But I mean, this is not jet science. It's not uh, brain surgery. It, it's skills that you can anybody can learn. Yeah. In fact, another aspect of this is many people will never get the professional help that they could use, and so that's why a big reason I wrote this uh, this workbook is if you're not going to get help, at least be aware of how and why your symptoms are occurring, what you can do for yourself. And then maybe you, you kind of ease in. Now that you understand and you see that little things help, maybe you get a co you know, coach. I'm using someone who just can, you know, tweak your skills and like, I see what's going on here. Maybe if you learn this skill. And so it's not a lot of mumbo jumbo and witchcraft. It's, it's basically being mm -hmm. our best version of ourselves because yeah. we all haven't learned everything yet. Yeah. Uh, you talking about this concept of, of telling your, having an individual tell their story and how, that can be very therapeutic. And, and that's sort of where, you know, some talk therapy uh, tactics maybe come in. Um, 
but also that maybe someone who's experienced a deep, you know, childhood adverse childhood experiences, maybe they don't know how to articulate it. They don't know how to talk about it or they don't want to, or it's just, that's where the, the anxiety comes from. But is there like, just from a church leadership standpoint or, or a church friend or, you know, Relief Society president, whomever, who has a good relationship with them, um, obviously they're not trying to give therapy and maybe they're planning to help them get the resources to get good therapy. But just in that personal relationship with a ministering brother, say, or an elders born president, is it helpful for that leader to just say, Hey, you know, tell me a little bit about your story. What was your childhood like? Or when I help them just begin to articulate their, their story to someone to help them sort of find connection and, yeah. and peace. There's a lot of research on expressive writing. For example, when people journal, not just, Oh, everything was wonderful today, but you know, take, take a section of a journal or a separate journal to just spill your guts. This is what happened and it hurt. And this is what I felt. And, uh, you know, there's, there's usually a benefit to that. Um, but again, there's kind of an art to this. It's not, it's not uh, one size fits all. You know, you might just say, if you're not comfortable talking about it, you know, I just reasonably familiar that there's a lot of research when people start writing, get it off your chest. If mm. you keep it bottled up, that's when it eats you up. And so journaling is good. Um, that should a bishop ask about, you know, spilling your guts? I, I think you just play that one by ear. If, if yeah. somebody's really uh, troubled, then it may actually uh, cause them to, to get more troubled. Yeah. Um, but you might just ask, are you comfortable talking about stuff? I understand, you know, generally this can be painful. And if it gets painful, then we stop and, and maybe we talk about um, somebody's trained to listen to yeah. this kind of thing and have skills to soothe those memories. I want to underscore the um, the journaling. I really like that tactic where because sometimes it feels like, you know, I'm just, I default to the Bishop experience. It's like, man, I met with this person four times. What are we going to talk about? Like, they're still struggling. I don't know what to say. So even giving them this assignment of being like, hey, listen, why don't you just go home and and journal about these things. You don't need to read them to me or bring it later, or and maybe you just put it through the shredder after. I don't know, but uh, just start processing these things on paper and go from there, and, and maybe that that'll work. I just I just like these tactics that rather than well, just read your scriptures more. You know, <laughs> sometimes we default to that because that's all we got. You know, right, right, yeah, right. Um, yeah. I know it is. It's tough because you know a lay leader ha has no idea what's out there. And neither does the person who's suffering, and and they're they're probably too troubled to actually shop. And so I always tried to kind of see, well, who's out there locally? Um, but for example, this accelerated resolution therapy. Somebody in uh, in our stake recently uh, asked me, "What can I do?" And I didn't need to hear the details. Um, uh, and I just said, "Well." here's a type of therapy I've seen really quite amazing results. And if you go to this website, acceleratedresolutiontherapy.com, you can find local trained therapists. She went and she said it was amazing. Yeah. And there's no what, adverse what effects if it doesn't work, right? You might as well try so, Yeah. And if there are, um, the therapist knows what to do with that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed like sometimes this church, like I like the, the advice you gave her, like, being open, asking people they want to talk about it. Because um, a lot of times I found that as a bishop, I was sort of this figurehead that had an office. People could come in and they could talk about anything. And again, not that I was giving therapy, but they, they just needed a container that felt safe with a person they felt mm -hmm. safe with to just start talking. And I remember one individual um, who started opening up, you know, he had been struggling with some some pornography addiction and masturbation and things. and and he was really just buried in shame about it all. And mm -hmm. he began, after a few appointments, he felt safe enough with me to start opening up about uh, a sexual abuse that took place in his childhood. And I remember him telling me, I've never told anybody about this. And and you can almost just feel a little bit of this weight off his shoulders of like, mm -hmm. I'm finally talking about this. And I, and I, you know, for that point, obviously 
uh, encouraged him heavily to seek professional help about these things as we continue to talk. But I think just creating that place of saying, if you do feel safe here and you do want to talk about it, I'm all ears and I'm willing to to hold space for that. Is that a good way to articulate that? I think that's wonderful. And it's also good to maybe say, I understand this could be difficult, maybe hard to open up with somebody you know, and that's what therapists, a good therapist will do. Yeah. Um, you know, but we were talking before about the spiritual aspect that, that so beautifully supports the, the healing process. But, um, you know, God is the ultimate attachment figure and, and his love is the ultimate answer to shame. And so that's what bishops can do. And it's totally fine to say, you know, I, I, I understand the healing process, but I'm certainly not, you know, equipped or licensed to, to counsel, but I'll, I'll certainly talk about the Lord's love for you. And that never changes, not, not when you're masturbating, not when you've got pornography. Uh, and often it is fed by, you know, shame from the past. And yeah. that's, you know, that's not a shameful thing to have shame. It's, it's, uh, it's called mortality, but we can heal. Yeah. It doesn't define us. T t tell me more about that, that phrase you just heard. You just, God is the ultimate attachment figure. Like, because in its essence, that's what we're looking for is attachment or a safe being to attach to that's going to offer love. Right. What, I mean, tell me more about that. Why do yeah. we, as far as the concept of attachment and why do we yeah. need attachment? It's a beautiful concept, really. Um, think about a newborn child, utterly defenseless, depends on that uh, caregiver, typically mother, could be father, grandparents, but let's just say mother because that's what's been researched the most. If that child senses, right brain, gut sense, not left brain, that they are loved and, and enjoyed and protected and uh, attuned to the mother. In other words, when I cry, that means there's something wrong and, and I can count on you to help me. Um, and I think about the parallels here with the Lord. Um, but, but that child's brain develops in a way that is calm. It's not on high alert. Uh, you know, mom leaves, but I know she comes back and therefore all's going to be well. And, and so I don't worry. My brain doesn't develop to be uh, on high alert. Um, conversely, if someone is insecurely attached to a caregiver who say looks with disgust or anger, then the kid says, I mean, not verbally, but at a gut sense, wait a minute, I just feel like I, I don't matter. I'm not worthwhile. Um, that's where the problems start. And so if a child develops a brain that's on high alert and usually there's shame attached to that pre-verbally. Uh, below consciousness, it's more a, a gut, visceral sense, a felt sense, sense of dread, sense of worthlessness. Um, that can be reworked. The brain is malleable. Hmm. Um, and so some of the things that I talk about to um, secular uh, groups is like using imagery to stabilize and strengthen the brain. Like, uh, it's kind of a funny story, but um, I was teaching a bunch of veterans, and of course, they have a lot of PTSD from war trauma. And we typically say, well, let's process the war trauma, but never mention, let's talk about what happened 40 years ago. And so after everybody left and I was outside, um, an old salty Navy vet, the kind of guy, if you met him in a hull of a ship, and when it was dark, you'd turn and run. Um, and he came up to me and said, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in a higher power, but I'm haunted by things that happened way back. You got anything for me? He said, well, yeah, the VA has got a skill called the moral authority where um, you imagine a figure. It could be a spiritual figure, a neighbor, a grandmother, or God for believers. Can you imagine being in the presence of someone who loves you? doesn't want you to suffer, wants you to be happy, has your back. Imagine that person understands everything, what you've done, what you've suffered, uh, the things you've done that have caused shame and regrets that this person had. Um, mitigates, like, well, you were younger then, you didn't know all your options. 
And I have full confidence that you're going to learn from those experiences and do better. Now, who does that better than the Lord? I mean, that's when I say the ultimate attachment figure. I mean, we can trust the Lord. That love profoundly changes us if we feel it, not just intellectually, but feel it. Yeah. No, that's so powerful. And that's why I love, I mean, you know, going back to what you said earlier, this, you know, the the myths of research that say that you know religion just adds more shame or or more uh, people feeling like they're not measuring up. In reality, it's the difference. And and to me, it's even in my opinion and in, in my biased opinion with our, the Latter Day Saint tradition is it is a remarkable model of connecting with the ultimate attachment figure, God the Father. That we have these these models and traditions of you know even going to the temple, right? Like. If, if someone's going going through a bad time, don't go to the temple because they're going to say something magic that's going to convince you to think differently. But go to the temple because you just need to sit in God's house for a few hours, right? And feel like you're welcome there, that he wants you there to feel of his love, right? Or return to the scriptures, not because they just magically help, but because you were entering, you know, that context of connecting with with the divine and hearing his words and mm-hmm. sitting with it and whatnot. I, I just love that contrast of thinking about just the model we have and as religious leaders, what we can offer to these people saying, you know, yeah, this is really difficult and you, you need to feel attached to God and feel his love and grace. And it's, it's so powerful. It is two things. And I hope I don't forget the second, but um, okay. <laughs> one of my colleagues is uh, a fellow Duke named Harold Coney. He's the leading researcher on religious research. Wow. And he made a statement that I thought was wonderful. He said, Religion causes guilt. Religion is the answer to guilt. Mm. Um, now, guilt, not shame, very big difference. But but it's okay to acknowledge, I don't feel good about what I did. And thankfully, I have an answer to that. Well, and thankfully, like, right. I don't feel good about what I did. But thankfully, I have a church to go to on Sunday where I can renew my covenant, right? Like, so so grateful for the sacrament that I can hit reset once again. You know, it's it's awesome. Then, I remember even in... in uh, you know, serving different callings. Sometimes you'd see people who were faithful members of the church who knew in their heads God loved them, but they didn't feel it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a setup for problems. I think that the first and best motivator to be a Christ follower is just feeling that love that is infinite, same for you and me. You know, I, I was thinking lately about Joseph Smith's first vision. You know, people talk about we learned a lot of things from that first vision, and we did. But to me, one of the things Joseph learned was God's love. Um, I heard a four-year-old once asked, um, how do you know when someone loves you? And, and they said, you can tell by the way they hold your name in their mouth. And I think when Joseph went to the grove, he heard the Lord say, Joseph, this is my beloved. And he felt their love. And he said, I walked out of the grove. I felt for a long time the Lord was with me. I felt his love. I felt joy. That's the fruits of God's love. And oh, I know what I was going to say before. is that God's love notes are all over the place. They're in the scriptures. They're in the temple. They're in patriarchal blessings. In sunsets, and, right? <laughs> yeah. Nature smiles. Yeah. Um, and just be open to that. Yeah. Look for it. Pray to feel it. You know, charity is a gift we pray for. Yeah. So it, it's things work together beautifully. It's not do this or do that. It's like, gosh, we have all these wonderful resources. Yeah. I love that. So good. Talk to me in going back to the context or the, um, the concept of, of trauma. Oftentimes I've heard therapists, um, frame it as there's big T trauma and there's little T trauma. So the big T is like, you know, I was, I was uh, sexually abused as a child, or I've experienced a rape or, you know, I've been to war, like where obviously it's a traumatic experience. And then there's little T trauma where um, maybe it's just more subtle. It's over time, just sort of that friction that builds and and creates that wound. Um, And is, is that a fair way to to frame it? Is that a, a, a thing or how would you articulate it? Yeah, I think that the people who make the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is kind of the dictionary for mental illnesses, they want to say there's an all or none character to disorders. 
you know, if you get this many symptoms, you're over the threshold and you got the problem. Well, there are a lot of people who are just below the threshold. And sometimes uh, the symptoms don't rise to a formal diagnosis, but you still have problems. And sometimes it's accumulation of the little things. You know, maybe I just grew up in it with a critical parent or parents of critical sibling. You never hear about the siblings, but they can do a, a number on kids sometimes too. Um, and so rather than say, you know, people get troubled by, I don't want this diagnosis, then everybody's going to know I'm abnormal. And I just go, we all have something going on here. And, and yeah. it's just utterly fine. I think what the Lord smiles about is when we can acknowledge that um, something's wrong and I want to get better. Same thing with a golf game. You know, I, I may have a hitch in my swing. I don't, I'm not aware of it, but a good coach will see that. Um, and that's what yeah. a therapist can do sometimes. Yeah. And I guess from what I've learned, like the important part of dealing with trauma, I mean, maybe one of the first initial steps is to recognize that it matters. Like obviously the wound in your, in, you know, in, from your childhood, it hurts, but if it's not like this big T trauma, and that's similar to my experience. Like I didn't have, there's not like in this, an event or this huge traumatic experience in my childhood, uh, but that doesn't mean I don't have any trauma or that it doesn't hurt or it shouldn't hurt. Right. And that's sort of the shame was like, well, you had a good childhood, Kurt, like, don't worry about it. Like uh, you, you yeah, shouldn't hurt. Grateful, right. But grateful. And yeah. that's true. Be grateful and yeah. go, what do I do with this? That hurts. Yeah. And that's what I love about these skills that, that I get to teach soldiers say that it works for healing. It works for prevention and it works just for coping better. You know, how many times do I hear people say, I never learned that skill. I wish I knew that when I was, I've said that, you know, I wish I, I knew a lot of the stuff I've learned over my career when I was 18 instead of when I was 58 or six, 75, you know, it's. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious with like, obviously a standing for adverse childhood experiences. Is there, is there just something about the childhood? I mean, we're obviously still maturing, uh, scary things seem more scary back, you know, when we're, we're developing is, would you say that the vast majority of like issues that mental health issues that people deal with are because of a, of a childhood experience? Or, I mean, what is it about the childhood that makes this more prominent? Well, I saw some data. I don't, I don't stand by it, but I just saw that it, <laughs> someone predicted 30, 40% of depression and anxiety has roots in childhood stuff. I don't know what, what who knows, right? Is, but uh, certainly it's one thing you got to rule out, just like you have to rule out medical causes of depression or anxiety. And that's why a good clinician knows a lot. But I just, I worry about some of our graduate programs that uh, just so much they don't teach and they could teach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, and I appreciate that, that because they're, they're obviously if a individual just got back from war six months ago and they're having a tough time coping, you, you're going to default to, well, you were, just got back from war. So let's talk about that rather than, you know, what happened in your childhood. But it's, I'm just thinking of those individuals and even the leaders, right, that who they seem like, man, I just can't get a, a handle on life or I'm I'm depressed. I don't know why, like. Maybe that, you know, it's obviously a good place to go there or have a therapist or refer to a therapist who's going to go to that childhood experience um, and, and explore it and, and rule it out maybe, but there yeah. could likely be something there. Yeah. And here's the neat thing. I remember when I first joined the church and I heard about opposition and all things and I go, I already know how to suffer. Why do I need to suffer more? But, <laughs> but there is something kind of neat about putting your finger on something that bothers you. And instead of running from it, um, any addiction, work, uh, drugs will do it. Instead of running from it, learn the skill of, okay, wait a minute, this is upsetting. I can sit with this and hold it in a compassionate way, much like you would hold a suffering child until they stop crying. And then they go out to play. You don't, you don't sit with that forever. But there are so many neat skills that... They don't teach in school. Most people in our families, we don't learn this, that are almost counterintuitive sometimes. You know, a lot of people think if I just fight it, I'm old enough, I'm adult, I shouldn't have any problems. Well, guess what? We sometimes do, and that's just utterly fine. And there are 
great skills we can learn to deal with those. Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, as we wrap up here, I want to ask, I'm just thinking about, you know, obviously, if somebody has experienced trauma, especially in their childhood, and now they're trying to just do life, and it's very difficult. Um, obviously, it's the coping mechanisms like sin or addiction or pornography or you know, those red, raise a red flag automatically. Like, okay, your behaviors are off course here. There's obviously something to be addressed, but there's also these like, uh, I don't know the right word for it, but positive behaviors that maybe they double down. I'm thinking of like the high school student who is struggling with his or her self-worth. So they exhaust themselves in getting straight A's, right? And sometimes there's that straight A student who dies by suicide and everybody's just baffled like, but she was getting straight A's, you know, like mm-hmm. everything seemed to be going well, when in reality, that was more of an effort to prove that the trauma shouldn't hurt her. Or I'm thinking of the church leaders, right, who have been straight laced their whole life and they're doing all the things, they're temple attendance three times a week, they're reading their scriptures, and but they're doing it with the intent of coping with the trauma to prove that the trauma isn't bothering them, when in reality, it's still a, a negative manifestation of that. Do you see where I'm going? Like what your expertise to this? I do. Um, Yeah, I went to West Point and, and that's kind of a a model over compensation school. Yeah. (laughs) It's taught to be perfect. And that's really fun. I mean, who doesn't like to be, you know, really skilled and, but, but what typically happens that doesn't compensate for low, low self-worth, um, what compensates for that is like healing skills, self-esteem skills, um, you know, forgiveness skills. There's a whole bunch of skills, just depending upon what's driving that that overcompensation. But I, I can give you a great example of, of a gal that I, I uh, met recently. Cheerleader, straight-A student, beautiful smile. Everybody liked her. And she just crashed. She got in the wrong crowd. She was taking AP courses, went to college and fell into a crowd. And she was so longing for attachment, belonging. She picked some real $2 counterfeit bills that uh, led her into drugs. And, and uh, you know, eventually she got out of there because somebody really took a, a, a father-like uh, interest in her. She didn't have a father. And, uh, you know, she had divorced parents, didn't feel attached to a mother who was preoccupied with survival. Um, you can get straight A's, but that doesn't fix the hurt. Yeah. It doesn't hurt sometimes to do well. I, I think it can be a feeling of success, but it's, you got to get to the root cause, cause yeah. often. Yeah. So that that's definitely a thing, right? And I just, uh, I don't know, like, and sometimes I'll feel this with individuals I'm interacting, maybe in a church setting where I feel like, and they're, they're a little bit over happy or they're like, I, I feel like I'm not really getting the real person here. And there's sort of, you know, there's almost this pose of like, you know, I've, I'm super churchy and I'm going to do all these things and I need to prove to the world that I'm, I'm, I'm good enough or whatever. Right. Yeah. And here and, we go, Kurt, back to that gospel truth. Um, yeah. That. There was a study done at BYU that was kind of interesting that LDS people tend to be overachievers. That mm-hmm. can be good or not so good. Most of the overachievers were adaptive overachievers. They loved to be excellent. It was fun, but they weren't driven by fear. The fear-driven group was the ones we worry about. You know, I'm, I'm doing that because mom told me I have to have an Eagle Scout or I don't come home for dinner. I mean, I'm exaggerating <laughs> yeah. a little bit, but, but or you have to measure up to your brother you can't achieve in your own unique way so there's fear-driven achievement we saw this at the pentagon or there is you know achievement from a secure basis and what we want is that secure inner core feeling and that's a skill that can be taught um yeah the spiritual truths help like you know, what did Elder Holland say? The, the first great truth of the universe is God loves us ex- exactly in the way that he asks us to love him. All our heart, might, mind, and strength. Yeah. That's where our security comes from. It's not from achieving. Yeah. So powerful. So, I mean, is there 
I, I, I've sort of painted the picture here, and you've you've added to it uh, much better than I could. But I mean, with those overachievers, those people, I mean, what do we do with that? I mean, you almost, unfortunately, you almost have to wait till they crash. You know, it's like, and, and they're so exhausted that they have to turn for help. But obviously, we don't want people to get to that point. Well, no, you don't. Um, I guess it just depends how open the person is. Um, you know, if you start to get to know them and talk, then these things might just organically come up. I find talks and teaching to be really useful. You know, just that, you know, be anchored in the Lord's love. It's not, be, you don't have to do anything to get his love. And that's sort of the basis of the self-esteem skills that, that I used to teach at, at the university, that uh, love is unconditional Worth is unconditional. Yes, you can grow, but do it from a secure base because it's fun, not because you have to to prove your worth. You know, sometimes yeah. we can just teach those, and that's why I love classes rather than crisis counseling because people are not <laughs> feeling singled out and, and uh, stigmatized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Glenn, this has been such a remarkable discussion. I I think it's been obvious how much I've enjoyed it. And uh, I've sort of bounced all around the outline that, that you sent me, the proposed uh, maybe principles we can talk about. Anything we that I glossed over, we didn't talk about, that you want to make sure we cover before we wrap up? It's just kind of a constant theme that we don't have to suffer for decades. You know, there is healing. If we haven't found it yet, even if you've been to counseling previously and got a one that didn't work for you, keep looking. Um, again, I think it's, it's skills. It's not inadequacy that's core deep. It's just, we haven't learned skills. When we learn the skills, we find we're happier, uh, we suffer less and anybody can learn these skills. Um, I think that's the hope of the gospel certainly, but it's also the hope of good psychotherapy. Yeah. Amen, brother. Um, well, if people do want, I know you've written books. I don't, are they more academic books or are they, I oh, mean, should, no, where, where did you send I, people to check out your work? Well, I usually just go to Amazon. Um, they're all written primarily for regular people who want to know what's going on and what can I do? Yeah. Um, and then secondarily, a lot of counselors read it and go, I wish I'd learned this in graduate school, but, um, you know, knowing what you can do to reduce stress, to be happier, feel more whole. Um, I think there are a lot of skills that we learn from overcoming adverse childhood experience. And I tried to capture that in this most recently published book, The Adverse Childhood Experiences Recovery Workbook. But any of the books I've written on self-esteem or um, uh, PTSD, uh, warrior uh suffering they're all on amazon if you just go google my name or the title of a book that's where i usually go awesome well we'll definitely link to uh your author page on amazon and some of your books there so that people have a, a straight shot to th those resources um last question i have for you glenn is you know even i'm just reflect on even your time at west point obviously that's a a celebrated leadership institution i would say um but just reflecting on your time as a leader, both in the church, outside the church, uh, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? I love that question. Thank you, Kurt. Kurt um, I saw at West Point some bad leaders and some really, really good leaders. And you sort of develop a leadership style. And that's why I enjoyed leading in the army and in the church because a good leader loves his people, you know, just like the savior, you know, come follow me. It didn't start with the infantry guy. It started with the, with the savior. People respond when they know the leader cares. And that sounds trite, but I mean, all the studies find that, that um, caring trumps technical skills. You know, it's all important. You got to have both, but, but the caring, the heart, of leadership is is more important than technical skills and that's why i think bishops do so much wonderful stuff because they care and you can sense that hopefully um and that can be tremendously healing we can learn the technical technical stuff 
you know, over time and down the road and we go to workshops for that. And then we get released before we've really learned it. But, but the heart matters. Um, if you respect people and you care, people know it. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts, and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about, the friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org contact. And remember to review the Mentally Healthy Saints library, click the link in the show notes or go to leadingsaints.org 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.